Father, thank you for your love, and we thank you that we don't have to be strong. Um, you are very strong, and we look unto you. We put our hope in you, and Lord, you blow our minds with your grace and your love. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Weakness. Nobody likes to be called a weakling. Does anyone like to be called a weakling? Have you guys ever gone to a job interview? And in that interview, the boss looked deep into your eyes and said, tell me, what is your greatest weakness? I always thought that was a very strange question. I thought we were supposed to hide our weaknesses. And so when the boss asks you that, when the interviewer brings that up, you feel very vulnerable and weird. And so I looked up some of the weird responses to that question. The interviewer said, what is your greatest weakness? And this person said, I'd say my greatest strength is my listening skill. I like that one. Another one, uh, what's your greatest weakness? Answering the semantics of a question, but ignoring the pragmatics. Could you give me an example? Yes, I could. I thought, I'm glad you guys get that. I was, I was kind of testing where the IQ level was, and you guys are good, you're good. I'm, we can go there now. All right, here's another one. Uh, what would you consider to be your main weaknesses and strengths? Sometimes they phrase it like that. Well, my main weakness would be my issues with reality and being able to tell what's real and what's not. And your strengths? Well, I'm Batman. <clears throat> One person said, my greatest weakness is my left hand. My greatest strength is my right hand. I thought those were good. Well, weakness is, is a, a topic that we're going to be looking at today. And so let's read in Exodus chapter 4. Um, we'll just get started. We'll dive right in. The, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, well, it's, it's a rod or a staff. And he said, cast it on the ground. So we cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. <laughs> yesterday, Dana's not here to defend herself, but yesterday we were doing some yard work and there was a snake in the yard and Dana did this. She fled screaming because there was a snake in our backyard and I just thought I'd make fun of her while she's not here. She ran. <laughs> it's just a little guy. I mean, just like this big. Who's afraid of snakes? Okay. That's a weakness. You can say that. And then the Lord said to Moses... Reach your hand, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So this is the first sign that God gives Moses, that, or, yes, Moses, talking from the burning bush still, we're still at the burning bush, Moses is getting his mind blown by all this revelation of God. And now Moses, he's kind of understanding what God has called him to do, to go and, 
and preach and be the, the vessel with which God brings his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And we see that this first miracle has a lot of layers of meaning to it. It's not just a magic trick. It's not just a magic trick. Who likes magic tricks? BK's hand shot up for four years, so he likes them more than you. <laughs> magic tricks are fun, okay, but they're an illusion, right? They, they're just to impress people. No one decides to follow someone really based on magic tricks. No, this has a deeper meaning than just a magic trick. And so we're going to look at a couple of these meanings, but trust me when I say, as I was studying for this, there are literally dozens and dozens of ways that this can fit into theology and fit into even eschatology in the end times and Israel and all kinds of things, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to focus on all those things. I'm gonna, I picked out a couple of the most important, most relevant for us applications of this rod that becomes a serpent and what it means. Okay, So we're going to see, number one, the practical lesson for Moses. The practical lesson for Moses. Okay, The rod or staff, you could say, in his hand, was what he leaned on because he was weak. How old is Moses? 80, right? He's 80, old, old man. Very weak. It's what he depended on because he was weak. It's what gave him strength because he was weak. It's, it was his defense in danger. I mean, he's a shepherd out there, and if a, if a lion came, he would take his stick and he'd just beat on him until it was his defense because he was weak. And being weak is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because in this weakness, we find a picture of the grace of God. You guys know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Well, when you get to verse 4, towards the end of that chapter, it says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. So this rod and this staff in Moses' hand, it speaks of, the upholding, strengthening, and protecting grace of God. It's a picture of grace. God's everlasting promise to provide all that you will ever need through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. Do you guys know that that promise is made to you? God says, I will give you everything you will ever need through my son. That includes all physical needs, all spiritual needs, all emotional needs. Every part of your life, Jesus claims to be all that you need. Everything. And this staff, this rod that Moses is holding is a picture of this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, there's a really important verse. Colossians 2, verse 9. I'll let you see it because it should be highlighted. It should be easy to find in your Bible. Colossians 2.9. <clears throat> it says, For in him, in who? Who do you think this is talking about? Jesus, of course. You guys are so smart. 
In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead. That means everything that God is, everything that God, uh, everything that represents God, all of his power, all of his might and glory and wisdom is in him. It all dwells in him bodily, contained in his body. And he says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. What is that claiming? That is claiming very simply that you don't need anything but Jesus. Period. That if you had nothing in your life, you got shipwrecked and you're on a desert island and you have nothing, if you have Jesus, you have everything. It's amazing. It's amazing. And we settle for so much less than what he offers. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's all in him, it says. And then he says, and you are complete when you are in him. So let me ask you guys, how do you get in him? By faith. You ask him. You look unto him. You speak to him those words of faith saying, I need you to be everything to me. And his response is, I am everything that you need. Today, my, my main goal is to just encourage you to look unto Jesus Christ for everything. And God is doing the same thing to Moses by drawing his attention to the staff or the rod in his hand. Moses is learning this. Check this out. As long as he is continually dependent on this staff, on the grace of God, things will be fine. But as God goes through the lesson of teaching him and he's cast the, the rod away from him, the staff away from him, it becomes what? A serpent, Right? As soon as Moses tosses away that dependence where he cannot no longer lean on this grace of God, where he's not depending on the grace of God, but he, he rises up and says, I don't need this anymore, and he throws it, what happens? It becomes the serpent, and he is now helpless to stand before the enemy. Helpless to stand before the enemy. What does Moses do when it becomes a serpent? He does what Dana did. And he ran screaming like a little girl. Ah, snake. He was scared. It's startling when a snake goes through the grass. I, I understand. Ooh, you know? But it's not like it's a spider or anything, right? <laughs> exactly. So how can I defeat Satan? We, I was having a discussion with someone before church. I was you guys, you and you. And I was talking with, we were, we were talking about defeating Satan. How can I defeat Satan? How can I be smarter than Satan? How can I be stronger than Satan? The answer is only simple dependence on God. Like Mo, Moses here is supposed to have this rod in his hand. And yes, it will blow the Egyptians' mind when they see it become a snake. Mm. 
But the first lesson, I believe, is to Moses himself. God is saying, don't try to do things on your own. Don't try to do things without my grace being the only thing you depend on. Okay. Next, number two, we're going to see a practical lesson to the people. The people that Moses is going to be talking to. The people that are going to see this. There's a very important lesson for them. Moses is going to be enabled to do a supernatural miracle. A supernatural thing. He's going to be enabled to perform a sign, okay? And this would encourage all the people that he was really chosen by God and not just a crazy man, not just a man selling them a bill of goods or just pretending to be called, just pretending to be called. No, Moses has been chosen and and called by God. It's not by the skill of any man that this miracle can be done. It was a sign. It was a miracle. It had nothing to do with Moses' plans for ministry. It had nothing to do with what day of the week they meet on or what, what they wanted to happen, what Moses wanted to happen. It was he was called and he was enabled by God sovereignly to do this ministry. And the people, they need to know that they're following someone who's called by God and equipped by God. Husbands, you are this person. Your wives and your kids are called by God to follow you. And so God, listen, God will equip you with the supernatural ability to lead them in love, to be the servant leader, like Jesus who took off his clothes and put a towel around his waist and he bowed down and he washed the disciples' feet, showing them how to be great in the kingdom, what God's plan and design for ministry was. Well, your family is a ministry and you might look at them and say, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't do this. And God says, right, it's too much for you. So I will equip you by my grace. I promise to do this, but you have to look to me. You have to look to me. You have to ask me and do things my way. Well, it has application into every part of our life. What kind of a husband are you supposed to be? God will equip you to do that. God's commands are his enablements. We've heard that many times from wise pastors. Well, it's true. He will give you the grace to do his will. Okay, so we've seen that this is a picture or a, uh, a lesson for Moses about staying dependent on grace. We've seen that this is a lesson for the people that they can trust God, that he has anointed Moses, that he has chosen Moses. Now we're going to see the third thing that I'm going to point out about this miracle is that it's a shadow of the gospel. And this is awesome. You should never have a sermon that the gospel isn't the, 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 the centerpiece. And we have it right here. Because Jesus is the rod. Jesus is the staff. How do you know that? Well, Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. 
rule in the midst of your enemies. The rod is a, is a common picture and word in the Old Testament that the Old Testament writers and God uses as a picture or a foreshadow of Jesus himself. And this rod that came out of Zion to rule the people of Israel when Jesus came and when he was born and the day of um, the, the Palm Sunday came and it was his day to rule, the people rejected him. They, they cast him away and said, we will not have this man rule over us, right? They killed him instead. But in our picture, we have Moses and the rod, and the rod being cast away. Okay, so it's a picture of Jesus, when he came, being cast away. But then this rod turns into a serpent. And you might, because you're a good Bible scholar, you might say, but Jesus didn't become the devil, right? The serpent, he reminds me of the devil, right? But he did become the curse. Okay, so when we see a serpent in the Bible, it takes us back to the first time a serpent was seen, which was where? In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And that serpent caused the fall, right? And now that serpent was cursed to go on its belly or whatever. And the curse upon us relates to that serpent. So when Jesus was rejected, was cast aside, he became that curse for us. It says he was bruised for us. He was killed for us. God took the curse that was upon our sin and upon us, and he took it upon himself in Jesus, in his body, so that we might be saved. And that is the gospel in a, in a simple way described. And here we have it in this little miracle. I don't know. Did you see that when we first read it? But when you dig and when you pray for an open heart, the Lord can reveal his gospel to you in so many beautiful, beautiful ways. Well, how did this all happen? How was our sin, how did he become our, our snake, you could say, our sin? When he was lifted up, that's when he became it for me. Well, he called Moses to go and reach that hand out and grab that snake, right? Just remember that. In John chapter 3, we have John 3.16, right, which you guys know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, the two verses before that are just as important, just as key. And look what they say. It says, it's talking about Moses. And it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. For whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? So that, what he's talking about right there is the next time Moses is going to lift up the serpent, there's going to be a, a plague upon the people in the desert where snakes are going to bite them. But God tells Moses to make a serpent of brass and to lift it up. And whoever looks at that serpent in faith will be healed and not die of their snake bites. And so this is just like that, where God is teaching it to Moses first. 
He's saying, listen, you, Moses, you have to be committed to the gospel. You need to take your hand, your hand, and you need to not be afraid, and you need to take hold of that snake. And when you lift it back up, it will be the rod again. And it will be your salvation. You will be saved. He's having this talk with Moses first. Do you guys believe the gospel? Good. Because you have to believe it for yourself long before you can bring it to the world. Are you guys in love with Jesus? Yeah. You have to be in love with him before you can encourage other people to love him. You see, this snake was made harmless by faith by faith. God said, Moses, you need to reach out a hand of faith, no evidence at all, except my word. I'm telling you to do it. Moses, we already know, is scared. He's, he's cowering away from the snake. And so here, God says, reach it out. You have no guarantee except for a promise of the word of God. And that's what it is to live by faith. I will not give you guarantees that you can see, you must trust me and my word. So let's test that faith now. I have a snake hidden, right? Right? Where, where did I put it? Ah! No, just kidding. I didn't. That would have been cool. That would have been like the greatest sermon illustration in the history of all. But I probably would have lost three or four of you to heart attacks and stuff. I was going to say, I've hidden a snake under one of your chairs. That would have been creepy, huh? Ugh. Um, so this snake, God is testing faith. But uh, I, I read a couple things about snakes I wanted to share. How do you measure the length of a snake? We have to use inches because he doesn't have any feet. <laughs> and what do snakes do after they fight? They hiss and make up. But faith, faith is shown by actions. And Moses, he is, he is doing an action. He is reaching out his hand. The snake could bite him, but he has to reach forth his hand and he has to grab hold. Actions show what you believe. When I was in high school, my uncle Edwin took me rappelling off a cliff up in the mountains up by St. Mary's Glacier. And uh, he's a mountainy type guy, and I, so he's real experienced with all this stuff. But ha who's been repelling? Terrifying is the word to describe repelling, okay? So because what you have to do, so like here's the cliff, and you're looking on the cliff saying, I'm going to die. And then you strap on the rope, and, and it goes down, and he's holding it down there or, or up above. I don't know. I don't remember, but... You just have to trust this person that is the belay, right? You have to trust them. And what you have to do to get started is you have to go back to the cliff, and then you have to lean straight back, all the way back, keeping your legs straight and just holding the thing. And that's how you have to start. You can't start by bending your knees and climbing down. You can't do that. You can't, it doesn't work. 
The only way it works is if you lean straight back, and wow. I took 30 minutes just making that, taking that step. And he was like, come on, Sean, come on, come on, come on. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. He's trying to encourage me, right? But man, it was terrifying to me to take that step of faith. And so I stand up here every week and I tell you guys, take this step of faith, take steps of faith, live by faith, trust the Lord. But I know it can be terrifying. It can be scary. But you know what happened is as soon as I was, as you fall down, you have to get to perpendicular, okay, where your feet are here and and it kind of makes a triangle with the rope and your feet. And then you feel that everything's fine. You're, you're literally pushing into the, the wall here and, it, and you just walk down. And after that, I was like bouncing all around and now just having a great time. But it's just that beginning part of how to take that first step of faith that is the most scary. Well, faith is shown by actions. And though that first step is a scary step. Reaching forth that hand for Moses is a scary step. But once it happens, you find that that, what, what was scary to you is no longer going to harm you. It's not able to harm you anymore because faith conquers that. It's pretty neat. How, how do I see this in your life? How do, how do we see this in our lives? Well, I mean, one way is, is premarital sex. If, if you love someone and you want to get married, a lot of times there's this temptation obviously, to have sex before you get married. But the Lord is asking us to trust him. He says, reach forth your hand of faith and let your actions glorify me. And, and so you wait, trusting the Lord. It's not that I'm old-fashioned. And it's not that the Bible is out of touch with today's society. No. The Lord is constantly asking us to trust him and his ways. And it takes faith. And it's scary, but it takes faith. How about drug use? That's another way where our actions need to line up with our faith. Are we putting our hope and trust in drugs? And I'm not just talking about illegal drugs. Any drugs. Is that where our hope is? And are we being disobedient to the Lord? Those are questions we need to ask. And it's scary to take that step of faith saying, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to grab what the Lord has for me. His promises, it's scary. You could, I could list all kinds of things that's scary. You could say tithing, forgiveness. How many of us struggle with forgiveness? And it's strong and hard and scary Loving people that don't deserve it, it's tough. In James chapter 2, verse 18, is a verse a lot, of, a lot of us are familiar with, and it honestly challenges us a lot when James says, but someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Moses took this snake in his hand, which is a work, but only by faith did he do it. Does that make sense? And just like all those things I mentioned, 
We have to do them by faith. Because there's two ways to do good works. There's two ways. By faith or by the flesh. By faith or by the flesh. If I want to do them by faith, God must come through for me and I believe that he will. God has to answer my prayer and I believe he will. That's Moses reaching forward and taking it. The other way, by flesh, we say, I can do this. I I need to depend. I must depend on my own ability or my own strength. And that would be Moses coming around the side of the snake and saying, okay, if I come from the back end, then he's he's not going to see me. And and then I'm going to turn the lights off. So maybe, and then I'll, and he's trying to come up with plans. He's trying to do everything he can do to be wise about the situation, and it's simply flesh. God said, Moses, you don't need to live that way. You just trust my word, reach forward the hand and grab it. Done. Oh, but should I be careful of the mouth? God didn't say that. God did not say that. He didn't. He said, reach forward and grab the tail. Done. That's the difference between living by faith and living by flesh. And you guys have to take account of how you're doing things. Am I trying to come up with the smartest way to do things? Even, even the Lord's will. What, is, what does he want me to do? I'm going to try to figure it out. Or am I just listening to the Lord's will and obediently stepping forward to do it with no thought of ramifications? The thought of what if God doesn't come through for me doesn't even enter your mind because you're believing his word. You're believing what he said. His promises are your bread that you're living on. That's how it works. James is wonderfully clear, what we just read, that he never does his works by flesh. James says that. I'll show you my faith by my works, he says. It's always fully trusting the word and promises of God. That's what faith is. James teaches clearly how to live by faith, not just think by faith. I think we're, we may actually be pretty good at thinking by faith. But when it comes to reaching out and living by faith, a lot of us are still standing on top of the mountain, not making it all the way to reaching forward our hand and living by the faith that we talk about. I ask again, do you believe the gospel? Well, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about it. I understand. But I still make my own decisions. I still choose my own path. I still choose even rebellion against the laws that God has so clearly given me and that show his heart. I still make, I still mess up a lot. Oh, do you believe the gospel? Another way, another answer might come, look, I lay it all on the line. If God doesn't come through for me, I'm sunk. I give my money, I give my time, I give everything to him. And if I don't get a reward, I have made a serious mistake. I deny myself pleasures, I go against the flow, people don't like me and they think I'm weird. Yes, I live by faith. That's how it works. I have heard the word of the Lord take hold of the snake, and I have taken hold of that snake by its tail. And if I'm wrong, I'm dead. 
but I believe his word and I trust him to the death. In other words, if God wants a snake to bite me, all right, I'll go to death for him because I trust him. Is that your response to the gospel? Each one of us has one of those responses. Either, yeah, I understand it, but I'm still making my own decisions. I, it's not put into action yet in my life. Or, yeah, I understand it, and I'm living my entire life by it, surrendered to his will. So I ask again, do you believe the gospel? I'm not asking you whether you mentally understand it, emotionally connect with it. I don't care. Do you believe it? In other words, are you taking the step to grab that? That's why it's a wonderful picture of faith, this, this whole snake thing. Maybe you need to test yourself to see if you really are in the faith, like Paul says. You're going to see failures, but I ask you, do you see places of faith as well? Do you see places in your life where you have reached forth that hand? Because you're going to see failures. If you're going to step back and look at every decision you make in your life, you're going to see failures where you make mistakes. But I'm going to ask, do you also see places where you've trusted in the Lord? Those are born of God and His Spirit, no matter how small they are. And be encouraged that you would have none of those if you didn't believe. Okay? Do you see areas where you've denied your own wisdom instead of, and instead chose to trust in the word and in the promises of God. Those are fruits of his spirit. Wonderful affirmation and confirmation that you are born of God. That's a good thing to have, is that confirmation. Now, we're going to go on and move forward with our next little miracle here. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom, like in his, in his right here, and he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put it in his bosom again, and he drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like the other flesh. Then, then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. Leprosy always re represents what in the Bible? Sin, right. It's contagious, it's gross, it starts small, it spreads, it kills, men can't cure it. You're cast out of God's presence and out of the congregation of God's people. Those are all things we know about leprosy biblically. And so we're going to see three lessons again. A lesson to Moses, a lesson to people, and a picture of the gospel, a shadow of the gospel with this one. First, a lesson to Moses. You are a sinner, Moses. That's what this lesson is. Don't forget it. You are infected. Your hand is infected. It's there. Only my grace makes you whole enough to serve me, Moses. The hand speaks of the energy, what you're doing, what you're accomplishing. And Moses is about to be used as the hand of God to save God's people. It's the instrument of work, the serving is done with the hand. And men, man can't be, cho be the chosen instrument of God for deliverance or for saving or for serving in their flesh. We can't do it. Man cannot serve God in their flesh. It's 
corrupted is what God is teaching Moses here. That's the lesson. Moses, your flesh, your natural state is sinful and you cannot be my hand with a leprous hand. Don't you dare try to serve me in your own natural ability. Your efforts, your ideas, your plans, all of it is corrupted. Oh, but I'm giving my best to the Lord. That's what so-and-so told me to do. Your best is infected with leprosy. We can't give our best to the Lord. We have to trust in His grace. Then we can be used by the hand. Everything we do to serve the Lord must be done by the sovereign grace of God alone, empowering us and working through us. God's power must fill us and cleanse us before we step forward to serve God. How does that work? How do I go from being someone who's trying to do it on my own with a leprous hand to being someone that is cleansed by God and can truly be used by God? Well, number one is humility. I am truly a sinner. God said, Moses, you gotta, you got to acknowledge this. You're a sinner, but God gives me grace upon grace to wash away my sin and to enable him, me to serve him. Number two, faith. I reach, out my hand, I reach out in obedience with my hand, obedience to his word, and I go and serve him. I live in love with this hand. God's grace is so powerful right here. He deals with our sin problem so wonderfully and lovingly. And boy, do we have a sin problem. Here he, he says it's, it's in the bosom. Do you know what that means in the Bible? It's in the heart, the inner man. Sin is hidden in the heart. I don't care how you act, how you perform on the outside. Even if you're great and kind and tenderhearted and loving, in the inside we're all corrupted. And in the hand, we're sinful in our actions. Not just in our intentions, but in our actions as well. We just, we're corrupted fully. But... Jesus deals with all of it for us. By his grace alone, he provides for us a right standing before God, which we could never earn. And he get, does a, a radical work of changing our lives, the outward expression of where we stand internally. And it must be given by grace alone. It's awesome. That's how this lesson to Moses. Moses... Again, your ministry needs to be one of grace. For you, you need to understand that. Number two, we're going to see a shadow of the gospel. Real quick, Moses was clean, and then he was sinful, and then he was clean again. And this again draws our attention and our hearts towards Jesus and what he did. Jesus was sinless before the cross, right? Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Sinless. 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin. Sinless. If someone tries to tell you, oh, Jesus never claimed to be sinless, tell him you're a goofball. Sinless was Jesus, yet he became sin 
for you. The gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin, sinless, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beautiful picture. He became the leper for us. Lepers were said outside the camp, right? Just like Jesus was crucified where? Outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the walls. Jesus was rejected by the Father for us. Lepers were rejected and had to live outside the congregation. They had no access to God's presence. Jesus was rejected by God the Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me during that time on the cross? The Father turned his back on Jesus and allowed the punishment of our sin to be upon him. And we have Psalms that are prophetic and they're messianic that talk about why, why have you turned your back on me? And David was writing them and expressing this thought and feeling that God had turned his back on him, just like you have prayed prayers, I'm sure, of God, why have you turned your back on me? But as we now turn our eyes to Jesus, we see that God will never turn his back on you because he already turned his back on Jesus. And now the sin, which is the root cause of all our issues, is done away with on the cross. And and the Father will never turn his back on you like those prayers that we read in the book of Psalms that are so heartbroken, that are so desperate for God's presence. You now have the promise that you will always have it. He'll never turn his back on you. It is awesome. Jesus was rejected by the Father for us. He took all the sin and and leprosy, we'll call it, of the world into his body. 1 Peter 2.24 says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. Then Jesus was clean, clean again. After the suffering um, the, of the terrible cross was finished, Jesus commends his soul to the Father, and he, he is back in communion with the Father, showing that the sin is gone, really gone. For sin cannot be in God's presence, right? Jesus was in God's presence up until that moment of the cross where he, the Father turned his back on him, and now he's back in God's presence for the sin is truly gone. God had turned his face from Jesus while he suffered, but now accepts Jesus and exalts Jesus. So awesome, the gospel. Back to Exodus. God says, And it shall be, if they do not believe these two, first, these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And this is a very simple message we have at the end here. The Nile River that he's talking about was the source of life for the Egyptians and the Jews living in Egypt. And God is saying, what you trust in now will be turned into a curse because it's not really a source of life. I have to do away with it. You can't trust in that anymore, guys. And the Egyptians had a bad habit of worshiping the Nile River. 
And God is saying, that will not help you. I am going to turn what you depend on into something that you will hate and that you will despise. This world we live in loves technology, right? They love uh, change and flexibility. They love security. They love education. They love tradition. They love strength and power and influence. And God will judge each and every one of these things as well. Not because they're evil in and of themselves, but because men worship and trust them over God himself. It's the idolatry. God is saying here, I am going to war with idolatry. And he says, if the two first signs of my grace and my gospel, if those two, first two signs are rejected, then God here gives the consequence, which will be judgment. If man refuses to accept the truth about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the only option left is judgment poured out. Why would men do that? Why reject his love and grace for his wrath? Because of pride and doubt. That's why. I don't need God. I don't believe God. His word means nothing to me. This is the Garden of Eden played out over and over again in our lives and in everyone's life here. The tempter is continually going around and tempting people to doubt God and that we should do things on our own. You know what to do. Get your college degree, find yourself a girl, and go live your life and make yourself happy. The pursuit of happiness, right? Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. The tempter is constantly getting people to buy into that philosophy. And Jesus says the only true way to happiness is to say no to yourself, death to yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Believing my love for you and my grace for you will equip you then to serve me. But you have to be all about serving me. You can't say, I just want to serve you on Sundays. I just want to serve you with this one relationship but not all these other relationships. It's all or nothing. G. Campbell Morgan had already enjoyed some success as a preacher by the time he was 19 years old. But then he was attacked by doubts about the Bible. The writings of various scientists and agnostics disturbed him, like Charles Darwin, John Tyndale, Thomas Huxley, and Herbert Spencer. And as he read their books and listened to debates, Morgan became more and more perplexed. So what did he do? He canceled all his preaching engagements. He put all the books in a cupboard, that he had um, been reading, and he locked the door. And he went to the bookstore and bought a new Bible. And he said to himself, I am no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be. His dad told him it was the word of God. But of this I am sure. If it is the word of God, and I come to it with an unprejudiced and open mind, it will bring me assurance to my own soul. 
It will work like that. It has to. So that's what he did. And the result, he says, is that the Bible found me. The new assurance came to him in 1883, and it gave him the motivation for his preaching and teaching ministry. He devoted himself to studying and preaching the word of God after that. And I say that because when we're in doubt, when the tempter comes to us, and he says, you don't need to follow the Lord. You don't need to believe all that's in the word of God. We go back to the word. The devil cannot be successful in the light of the word of God. Just like darkness can't hang around when a light switch is flipped on. Have you ever seen that? The darkness saying, I'll be a minute. Hang on. What a marvelous tool that we have in the word of God. The word of God. It's always effective, always faithful, always powerful because it's God's grace written or put on paper laid out for us to grab a hold of. That's why we read it. And why does God give it to us in the Bible? Why isn't it a 3D movie? I've always wondered that. Well, it's because it takes humility and faith to see it and receive it. You're not going to read the Bible if you don't believe it, faith. And you're not going to read the Bible if you don't feel that you need his grace. Reading the Bible will be a burden to you, a bother to you. You'll be like, why do I have to spend time? And it's like pulling teeth just to have devotions for five minutes in your own soul. I'm not talking about me making you do devotions. Your own soul is fighting with you saying, I hate this. That's why it's done this way. Because when you open up the word of God, you are putting your flesh to death in a slow and mean chokehold. And it will cry. And it will, yes, Darth Vader, there you go. It will, your flesh will fight against every moment where you're forcing yourself to depend on the Lord. Saying, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't understand it. But I trust that it's the word of God. And I go to it. It is my daily bread. I'm not going to forsake it because my soul must live before my flesh. I need this more than I need to eat. He gives grace to the humble. That's what James 4, 6 says, right? His grace, the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the life of Jesus given to you He says he gives it to the humble. The humble opens up the word of God because the humble sees their need for life. And we access the grace of God by faith. Just like Moses took the hand and he grabbed the snake and it was no longer dangerous. We access the grace of God, the life of Jesus, the the supply of Jesus by faith alone. Well, that is our time we have in the word today. It's been really awesome to spend time with you guys. But again, maybe we've just engaged the mind and we need to now move it to the heart. So would you guys stand with me as we sing a song? It's, uh, it's wonderful to close our time with a song and communion because it's just like Moses having to reach forth his hand and take by faith what God has promised to give.
So, as we always do, you're free to come up and take communion. Uh, as, you're, you know, as you're singing, you can wait a moment and pray first. You can come up right away. It's just open for whatever. This is now your time to let what we've talked about today go from the head down into the heart. And I know that God has been working in your heart already. But I don't want it to just be a faith that we talk about. It needs to be a real faith. So maybe what you're going to do by, to step out in faith is to bow and worship and to lift up your voice and sing. Maybe it's to raise your hand. Maybe it's to come up and, and take the communion and remember All of those things can be what it is for you. But what it can't be is faking it. We can't fake it. If you fake it, you're truly lost. We can't fake it. We surrender everything to the Lord or we're faking it. Right, guys? Amen. Let's let's come before him. Father, we give you everything. We're so sorry for the times that we have... um, trusted in ourselves for all the days maybe that we've spent uh, depending on our flesh. Lord, it's, it's almost clear to us the days we depend on our flesh are the days that we don't open up your word. The days that we don't put our trust in your promises. I pray, Lord, that you would create in us a deep sense of need and humility before you. We know that we are sinful. Jesus, our faith and our trust is in you alone. Lord, please make it real in our hearts, more real than it's ever been. I pray we'd surrender our days to you, our nights to you, our evenings, our mornings. Lord, be everything for us. So I encourage you all to now look up to the cross, open your heart to all that it is brought to you and take it by faith. Just remember him on the cross. Acknowledge that he took all the sin of the world into his body, including yours, and be alive.